0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to health care. That's why Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at
3: uh1.com. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily
4: cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
5: I'm Christopher Kimball. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. And this is Food Wars. The art of
6: cooking is indeed a vast and stupefying spectrum. A wasteland dotted with
3: endless examples of the
6: delectable
3: and the repulsive. And that is where I want to be, walking the reaches of the food universe.
1: Walk it on your own, you stupid nitwit.
5: Food Wars, which is now a Netflix TV show, was originally a manga or comic from Japan. Back in the 1970s, manga comics started branching into new areas, such as food and farming, with over 1,000 gourmet manga published today, many of them crossing over into television, such as Samurai Gourmet. To help us understand gourmet manga, I'm joined by Deb Aoki, writer, artist, and co-host of the podcast, Manga Mangasplaining. Deb, welcome to Milk
7: Street. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. So
5: I read that in 2020, the manga market hit a new record, over 600 billion yen, which I guess is like $5 billion U.S. dollars. So let's start with that. <laughs> that that's, a, that's an amazing number. It's huge.
7: Yeah, I don't, I don't think most people understand how big the manga market is compared to you know the market in America. I mean, and even in America, manga readership has gone up like 120% like in the last two years. Hmm. You know, it's just, it's, it's addictive stuff. It's like once they, it gets their little hooks in you, you keep reading <laughs> and you just want more.
5: Well, First of all, let's just say a lot of these are in black and white. Yes. So it's not like you have all this, you know, Marvel Comics color. Mm. Um, so it's about the storytelling. And what is it that defines the storytelling that makes it so addictive?
7: Well, a lot of how manga is serialized in Japan, it's a lot of it's in magazines, like thick phone book type magazines. So they're printed on this cheap newsprint, and new issues come out every week or every month. So the key to surviving in these magazines is a great cliffhanger that gets people to keep coming back for more.
5: There's a thousand so-called, and this is the point of this discussion today, gourmet manga. So now food has been incorporated into the storylines, but in really interesting ways. And, and I think I'm quoting from you, um, young men from disadvantaged backgrounds enter a profession and become the best in Japan <laughs> as, as one of the themes. You want to just elaborate?
7: Yeah, that's that's a classic uh, shonen manga theme. Shonen means boy. So it basically means comics for teen boys. And a common theme in shonen manga is the every guy who starts from nothing or starts from very basic circumstances. And through friendship and heart, you know, effort, he becomes the best in whatever field he's in. And in the case of gourmet manga or cooking manga, he becomes the best chef. <laughs> so the cooking manga fits into that style of story very nicely. Because as we all know, cooking is a journey, right? Like you're mastering skills, and you're mastering techniques and ingredients, and there's just so much to learn.
5: So let's just talk about some of them. The Drops of God is one where the whole thing is about learning about wine, right?
7: Yeah, definitely. The young man is basically, his father is a world-famous wine critic, and he has this wine collection that's worth millions of dollars, but he's rejected his uh, father's ways and he gets a job at a beer distributor. <laughs> but then, um, Ouch. when his father dies and s- leaves a will and says, I- I've described 12 wines that I consider the greatest wines. I- and he makes these poetic descriptions. And then he challenges this young man if you figure out what these 12 wines are, you will inherit my multi million dollar wine collection. And so, what this does is this takes them on this journey through expensive wines, inexpensive wines, wine regions around the world. And you learn about wine in a really fascinating way because, you know, like wine appreciation was not a big thing in Japan or in throughout much of Asia. Thanks to Drops of God and Drops of God highlights real wines, um, real vintages that you can actually go to the store and buy.
5: Well, you said some of the wines featured in the series Drops of God went on to sell out.
7: Oh, yeah. Instantly. (laughs) And the way that they describe it, right, it's not just like saying like, oh, you know, it smells like flowers or it tastes like cloves. It's like the way they depict it, like the sensation of drinking a really powerful, full-bodied wine is like listening to Queen Bohemian Rhapsody, you know? You think, wow, I want to try that. That looks like it tastes amazing.
5: (laughs) Uh, A a friend of mine who's actually in the TV business in the United States loves Food Wars. Ooh, really? Uh, (laughs) So describe Food Wars.
7: Food Wars. Keep in mind that its original audience is teen boys, right. but it's about a young boy. His father runs a family restaurant, so he sends him off to this elite boarding school that trains the best chefs in Japan as you know, like as high schoolers, as teenagers. And this is such an elite high school that they have the equivalent of an Iron Chef type cooking yeah. arena where they compete against each other in these battles of honor. But what makes it a teen boy manga? is that the way they express how good the food tastes. It's like, if the boy serves you something that's really tasty, the people who eat it are so overtaken by ecstasy that their clothes explode off of themselves.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that okay, yeah, I would have thought of that.
7: <laughs> but there's also, it's really smart about food too. Like it introduced things like molecular gastronomy and hmm. fermentation and smoking and very sophisticated cooking techniques. Now, some
5: of this goes back in time. It either has a sci-fi aspect or has historical. So there's Samurai Gourmet, for example. <laughs> um, so, so that's what a great title it is, by the way. So some of these are not real world dramas or melodramas. They they incorporate other kinds of fiction, right?
7: Yeah, that's a, that's been a really fun and interesting development recently because one of the most popular genres of manga now is called Isekai which is someone ordinary goes to another world, like Sekai means a world. And so if you, if you say like, oh, you know, it's like Die Hard, but in a kitchen, right? Like, I think Delicious in Dungeon is really funny because it's about adventurers going into this dungeon to try to find this dragon that ate one of the adventurers' sister. But along the way, they discover, oh, if we go into the dungeon, we have to take supplies with us, and they're heavy, and it's expensive, and, you know, it's like camping, right? You got to take all your supplies with you. So so why should we bring all these supplies? It's heavy supplies when we could just cook what's in the dungeon. (laughs) So they start cooking the creatures and the things that they find in the dungeon, like these walking mushrooms or these slimes and things like that. And then they'll provide recipes like, oh, you know, you can make sauteed dragon cutlets and then... It's a real recipe, but you just have to imagine getting rid of the dead dragon cutlet and putting pork instead.
5: <laughs> so, the popularity of food manga has inspired people to go into food, or is the fact that food so popular that that has inspired the food mangas, or neither?
7: I think it's a little bit of both. Um, like, like for example, like Ajihei the Cook um, inspired a lot of people to go into cooking. And to that point, there's several restaurants just named like Ajihe in a tribute to this manga. There's a lot of like Oishimbo, for example, depicts a lot of different real farms and real foods. And so then the impact there is like people think, oh, farming is cool. Um, Silver Spoon, for example, is about a young boy who goes to an agriculture college. And it kind of has this impact of making people think, yeah, farming in Japan, it's important. You should. You can get into it. So it opens people's minds up to all kinds of possibilities. Hmm.
5: <laughs> so it's it's sort of like a way for people <laughs> to promote different trades, right? <laughs> By having mangas which actually show farming is fun and cool. Yeah. Whereas the reality of farming is it's actually really, really hard, but that's another matter.
7: It is hard, and, and Silver Spoon doesn't, doesn't gloss it over. I would encourage you to check that out because it's very, pretty special. I mean, the, the, he's a city boy and he gets to raise his own pig and he has to kind of come to terms with, he has to kill it hmm. to make it into bacon. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Deb, thank you. Uh, the world of food manga. Thanks.
7: Thank you. This was fun.
5: Deb Alki is a writer, artist, and the co-host of the podcast Manga Explained. You can see a full list of the manga we spoke about today, at manga-splaining.com. Now it's time for me and my co-host, Sarah Moulton, to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also stars in Sarah's weeknight meals on public television. So, Sarah, you are a French aficionado, especially in the kitchen. You worked a lot too leap, etc. Have you now, through your revisionist culinary experience, gone back and decided there were some parts of the French repertoire you now have abandoned or techniques you think that just make no sense for you now?
8: Well, yeah. Some of the, I was going to call it silliness. I'm going to be shot at dawn. But, you know, things like clarifying stock for a consomme. I mean, really, why? It's so much work. Why bother? Or the thing of, you know, black pepper for dark things and white pepper for other things. That seems silly. And really the most heretical thing that I've come to is to heck with mise en place. It's useless.
5: You and I—now, come on. You're a very good cook. And so for you, you can do the mise en place you need to do ahead of time. And then when there's unattended cooking time, you can finish doing other things. So you know how to integrate— mise en place into a recipe. For most people, doing all the mise en place, all the prep, the cutting, the chopping, et cetera, measuring ahead of time, everything's done, the kitchen's clean, and then you can just focus on the cooking, I think is really helpful to people. You've worked in a restaurant, you're a professional cook. For the rest of us, I think having all that done, it relieves your mind of, oh, I forgot to slice the garlic or I didn't measure the cinnamon. It's all done and now you can just enjoy and focus on the cooking.
2: Well, I
8: agree with you when you're a new cook. Yeah. It's really a recipe for disaster not to have everything figured out ahead of time. However, I came to this realization naturally because I was working full time. I'd get home at 6.30 after picking up the kids, and I'd have to get dinner on the table. I could not do the mise en place first. It was a waste of time. If you're a middle, no, good point. good cook— which, you know, the people we talk to on the phone are amazing. They're serious home cooks. I bet you any one of them could try this approach that I have, which is to look at a recipe, get out all the ingredients, throw them on the counter, and then, you know, get the first thing on first and then do the prep while that's cooking.
5: It reminds me of a friend of mine in Vermont who did construction for years. He's now retired. He would get to the job site at 5.30 or 6 in the morning lay out all the tools, get everything organized. So when the crew came in at like 7.38, the mise en place was done and it was a very organized job site. There is a huge emotional and psychological pleasure to having everything done. So now you can just do the fun part. The fun part's the cooking. I just like emotionally knowing it's done.
8: You really do enjoy cooking very much, but I have to say like my mother, you know, working all day yeah, and then true. coming home From a practical and having point of the view. two kids underfoot. Uh, well, that's know, true. I started cutting corners.
5: I'm talking about Saturday afternoon cooking where you have endless time.
8: Well, that's a whole different ball game. Then you pour a glass of wine, you put on some but nice that, but music. But that
5: but that's the ball game I want to go to. Well, you go to that I Like ball that game. ball game. Yeah. Okay. Time okay. to take some calls.
8: Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lee. Hi, Lee. where are you calling from? Uh,
6: Sherwood, Oregon. Nice.
8: How can we
6: help you today? <laughs> I'm actually calling with a question on behalf of my dad. And he lives in Indiana. And he and I bake a lot of bread and sort of compare our experiences over the phone. And he does the no need bread recipe, pretty standard, you know, nothing fancy. But he's been having a lot of issues where the bottom of his bread burns or is like very dark and crunchy. We're struggling to figure out what his issue is. He has recently lowered the temperature of the oven, and he uses a Dutch oven to bake his bread, which he preheats. And then he puts a piece of parchment paper to see if maybe that helps. And he's really not having any success.
8: Is his Dutch oven ceramic coated? Yes. Okay. Does he have gas or electric? Gas. So in his oven, the heat source is where?
6: Oh, gosh. I actually don't know because I haven't seen his new oven.
8: (laughs) Right. If he has the pan all the way down at the bottom of the oven and the heat source is mainly coming from there, that could be part of the problem. Is this like the one that was in the New York Times, Mark Bittman, Jim Leahy version? Yes. Uh Yeah. So that would be my first guess, uh, that maybe put it on the middle rack, not on the bottom rack. Yeah, I think that might be what the problem is. Um, Chris, what do you think?
5: I would not preheat the Dutch oven. I've made this recipe many times. I actually can't remember if you're supposed to preheat it. Yes, you are. But I would try not preheating it. No, just try it. Sarah's given me that... I gave you an opportunity to say something smart. You just said something stupid. <laughs> also, is this a, um, what made what? Uh, I
6: believe it's a Le Creuset.
5: Has he had this problem just recently? Or is this something that's happened a lot over time?
6: I think it's happened a lot over time. I think originally, too, he did a lot of the recipes by Ken Forkish, which is a book mm-hmm. that I love.
5: Yeah, I know that book. Granted,
6: they're a little more complicated so I didn't know if it was partly the recipe, you know, like there's not a lot of kneading if that mattered.
5: I would say something even simpler and potentially dumber, which is if his oven is not calibrated properly, his oven just may be running 35, 40 degrees hot.
6: Yeah, it is. And now, possible. now
5: you did mention something about turning the oven down. He tried that. And what happened then?
6: You know, most bread recipes say to preheat to 475 and bake right. it at that temperature, he does that too, but he was still having the issue. So I think he preheats to 450 and drops to 430. And he said he's still having the same problem. But I really truly wonder about the heat source. Maybe that is it, that it's just too close.
5: Yeah, I mean, I agree. You should try the middle rack or upper middle yeah. rack. The problem with the Lou Crusade, you don't. doesn't fit. Yeah, you could I put in it the middle rack, <laughs> maybe, depending on the size of the oven. I would try not preheating, just give it a shot. Okay. I bake pizza, for example, in round pans that are not preheated. Yeah. Just throw them in the oven. Right. So it'll work. Yeah. And if it does work, just write a personal note to Sarah. I'll give you her email and just tell <laughs> her what a great idea this was.
6: Oh, <laughs> my anyway, God. that's um,
5: – give that a shot. will
6: tell them and hopefully it helps them out. Yes. And, you know,
8: let us know how it goes. We okay, always I like to hear yeah. back.
5: Especially okay, if I'm sure. right.
8: Yeah, yeah. Th- right.
5: Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Okay, bye. bye.
6: All right. Thank you. Bye.
5: This is Milk Street Radio. If you want to change the way you cook, give us a ring anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
1: This is Jen calling from Seattle.
5: And how can we help you?
1: Well, I, a few weeks ago, was making a Zanzibar curry and the directions had you saute a diced onion and then add some spices bloom the spices for a minute and then you were to add in a can of crushed tomatoes and then add a diced potato and then you were to simmer that until the potato was soft and the recipe said maybe 20 minutes and so i simmered and simmered and maybe 60 minutes went by and the potato was still uh, not soft. And so we ended up having a curry with some pretty
6: tough potatoes.
5: (laughs) It was a raw curry. That's good. Well, it's the old old pectin thing. I once made baked beans years ago in Vermont for a big party. And after seven hours, they still weren't soft because I had put in acid tomatoes into the mixture early on. Okay. So acid will make the pectin in beans or potatoes not dissolve. It'll stabilize them. That's probably what happened. Was salt added before the potatoes went in?
6: Yeah, salt was added.
5: The choices are adding the tomato later, cook the potatoes separately, add them at the end. You could soak the diced potatoes in salted water first and then put them in because that might soften the pectin. But it's clearly a problem of acid stabilizing pectin so it doesn't break down. Sarah?
8: I actually agree with you, which is so rare. Wow. Yeah. So if you like the flavor of the stew, that what you could do the next time is just cook the potatoes separately in a pot of boiling salted water. And then okay. drain them and add them to the curry later on. Okay. And to
1: be honest, the recipe wasn't that great to begin with, so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It won't be one I make again, but it's just nice to have the food science understood.
5: Right. Curry's interesting. One of my editors went to Mumbai a couple years ago. It's a five-step process. It's more of a technique than a recipe. But once you get the technique down, you know, you can make hundreds of curries. And a potato vegetable curry is a typical curry, so. It's really a great technique to master. It's sort of like a stir fry, right? It's a thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe you should try <laughs> try a better recipe. <laughs> I will definitely try
8: a better recipe. Yes, Jennifer.
5: Thanks for calling. Thank
8: you. Thanks so much.
5: Okay. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Jet Tila talks about Thai food. That's right up after the break.
2: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
5: You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Jatila, chef, cookbook author, and Food Network personality. His latest book is 101 Thai Dishes You Need to Cook Before You Die. Jet, welcome to Milk Street. Chris, thank you
9: very much. Thanks for having me.
5: So your dad opens up the Bangkok market in Hollywood in 72, then the first, I guess, Thai restaurant uh, in West L.A., Royal Thai Cuisine. Uh, That was a long time ago. Uh, Oh, man. So what what was that like uh, then when people had no idea you know, what dragon fruit was or whatever.
9: My memories are very early days of this tiny little 600-square-foot grocery store. We were the first Thai market, but I think concurrently, California cuisine was popping and all this Asian introduction fusion when it was confusion a lot of the times. We were the only place in L.A. that would cater to a lot of the chefs, like Jonathan Waxman and the Two Hot Tamales and Joakim, so... I was bagging groceries and cutting meat and delivering, you know, uh, items to all of the chefs that we just mentioned. So those were my fond memories because I knew they were kind of like the chefs and they were just kind of circling through our grocery store, kind of yelling at our drivers and me. And um, (laughs) it was really, it was really fun times.
5: You you have this little quote about things you did early on, security guards, selling cell phones. Then you say, quote, those are all the good things I can talk about (laughs) Uh, were there anything, other things oh, you don't man. want to talk about?
9: You know, Christopher, You know, it's been 20 years, and, oh, you know, why, why the hell not, man? Like, it, it, not everyone knows, but I think it's okay to talk about... You know, my dad came to this country in 66 because he got into a lot of trouble in Thailand. So he basically had to come here or he'd end up in jail. And, mm-hmm. and I, I haven't really talked about it, if ever, on, on, on the media. But, you know, I changed my name to Tila. From Tilikumankul for a specific reason, because if you Google Tilikumankul, um, you'll see uh, some of the things my dad did hmm. that you know were against the law. And in that vein, um, you know, I got into a good amount of trouble. Uh, <laughs> you know, I just I just always knew kind of when to stop, where the line was to not permanently kind of ruin my life. So how's that? That's some juiciness in there without, without incriminating yeah, without myself really, too much.
5: Without someone showing up at your door with a badge. Yeah. Um, so were there any moments in all of this that were kind of pivotal moments for you when either you figured out this is what you wanted to do or some ridiculous moment when, <laughs> when everything just fell apart?
9: <laughs> um. One one good one was, you know, I dropped out of high school, and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself, and um, we had this diehard group of non-Asian shoppers that wanted to learn cooking, and they were like, Jet, how do I make pad thai, how do I make dom yum, how do I make sauté, and I would, I would write out recipes for them, and they, really, they asked me to do a cooking class, and I was like, you know what, what the heck, right? Uh, I did this series of cooking classes out of my mom's backyard, and um, Barbara Hansen, from the times oh, yeah. you know yeah. we all, we we know yeah. her well yeah. she she snuck into the class wrote it, wrote an article about it i i
5: read the article actually. no way she was quite complimentary
9: it, man that changed my life it really did it, mm. it, it it gave an aimless troublemaking kid a vision of the ability to succeed in life
5: yeah, this has always interests me you end up going to le cordon bleu and the california sushi academy um, it's so interesting <laughs> because did, did you learn things at Cordon Bleu, you know, basic techniques which have stood you in good stead over the years?
9: Yeah, I think that all of us culinarians speak a language that's framed in, in French technique, right? right? So I needed French culinary school to help me teach Asian food w- with the language of French cuisine. The, the French have a very established language right. of cooking, and the Japanese— have a very established language of cooking. And that's why I went to those two types of schools. You know, the Thai also do. But the access to the books and the translations don't exist like Hmm. they do in French and Japanese cooking. So yes, I think a Northeastern Thai grandma and a Southern Thai grandma can talk the language of curry paste, but we don't have a universally agreed upon term for the the paste technique, the the wood mortar versus the stone mortar.
5: You know, in French cooking, it's depth, it's sort of one note with slight variations in depth, and then you look at like Thai cooking, and it's about a variety of very different flavors melding together into some harmony, but each not losing its distinctiveness, right? Yeah. You discuss this in your book. Salty, savory, sour, spicy, sweet is sort of being the underpinning for much of Thai cuisine.
9: Yeah, those five and also there's a term, yum, and not the American yummy in my tummy, but, you know, tom yum... Yum right? like these Thai words, yum is the actual means, hot, sour, salty, sweet, savory, in balance, in a sauce or, or seasoning. It's that palate friendliness and then bending. We're also a culture that allows food to be changed. So I have a Thai grandmother and a Chinese grandmother. My Chinese grandmother would make you a dish and if you tried to alter it anyway, she would be offended and she would try to attack you. And hmm. my Thai grandmother would say, Chris, here's your dish. Here's a little dab of fish sauce. Here's a little dab of sugar. Here's some chili. Make it how you want it, but here's how I think it should begin.
5: So one is Mozart, the other is a Grateful Dead.
9: There it is. right there, Exactly. Just
5: improvise.
9: Fish versus primus, maybe, as well, right? There's another yeah, way come to Come on, don't
5: talk about fish. If you're a deadhead, you don't talk about fish. That's right. I know.
9: That's why I jammed you in there. I'm sorry.
5: <laughs> um, You could say you could write a book about soy sauce— I've learned a little bit more about it over the years. But could you talk about it? Because I find it so interesting mm. that we think it's a thing, but obviously it's more than a thing, right? Yeah.
9: It, it, the most basic way to explain it is like those of us, that when we were kids, we drank box wine. And we're like, okay, I get it. It's kind of acidic and it's come from a grape. And then you start to understand the depths of terroir and kind of the different methodologies in making wine. And and, and, and and soy sauce is that large of a world, right? I just want people to expand their repertoire. So, so you're using Japanese soy right now, and you might have a red cap, like high sodium. You might have a green cap. Just go get yourself a, um, a Thai soybean sauce. And I think they called soybean just as a differentiator, but it's basically a hydrolyzed soy sauce with a little more sugar and some umami in it. And then start to pull in a, a Chinese sweet soy, which has a high percentage of molasses. And then you can get a, a dark soy if you want, which is going to give you more color, less salt. Uh, and, and between the, right there, with those three new soy sauces, you're going to open up f- 20 to 50 more dishes into your repertoire.
5: Uh, three or four other key pantry ingredients you yeah. think are, are critical here?
9: Um, good good fish sauce, but most fish sauces nowadays are really great. Um, chili paste in soybean oil will change your life. It's like, it, it's you know, chili crisp is getting hot right now, right? But right. Thai people make this chili paste, which is very little chili in it. It's more like... Um, roasting shallots and garlic and Mm. shrimp paste. So it's sweet, and it's deep, and and it's umami. And there's just a hint of chili in it. And that's going to give you the red in like tom yum soup. That's going to give you another dimension of savory sweet in your stir fries. And um, another really good tip is you can use curry paste. Instead of trying to find all the individual ingredients, curry paste is one of those Ingredients that has like 10, 12 things in it that are integral. So, someone else has already found you galanga and garlic and lime and lemongrass, smashed it together. And, 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 you know, that's really a flavor shortcut that doesn't really, you're not shorting yourself in, in authenticity.
5: And in the bottle with the rooster on it, sriracha is not the real thing.
9: <laughs> oh, you I, know, my I, I know thing. Is, you now just Now we're couldn't. back to fish and and, and <laughs> right. dead again. Yeah. You know, a great family, amazing product.
5: In California, right? It's done It's California. California. Yeah. And I,
9: I can't imagine pho, and I can't imagine spicy tuna rolls without it. Just it's a completely different flavor than the Thai. That's the only hmm. difference. Thai sriracha is smooth. It's sweeter. You know, again, the five-flavor hmm. wheel, no, nothing's overdone. It's a very mellow sauce. It's That is not the flavor of sriracha.
5: <laughs> There's so much bad pad Thai to talk about the most popular Dish, yeah, you know, a sort of glutinous block of noodles, etc. So, so what goes wrong with pad thai? So, in so many restaurants,
9: right? Bad pad thai is kind of like bad pizza, though, isn't it? I mean, they're, you're yeah. still going to sit there and eat it. But what went wrong early days was ketchup. <laughs> there should be yeah. no tomato product, and not really understanding the application of acid. And as long as you have a tamarind fish sauce or vinegar and fish sauce and then sugar, hmm. you should be good to go. But most people just kind of made it up as it went, went along. And most of that was just a ton of sugar and a ton of ketchup. And that's what messed up Pad Thai. Uh,
5: 4,000 pound stir fry?
9: <laughs> yes, sir. I've broken. So, yeah.
5: I mean, like, you were bored, you're out of work, you were trying oh. to break the Guinness Book of, of World Records here. Check, check, check. Right. <laughs> how do you, so, okay, how do you do 4,000 pounds? Uh,
9: yes, so you hire a metal worker to take a, yeah. a quarter-inch steel and weld plates together. So you at that point, I think we had a 18-foot walk. Jeez. Yeah, and of course you couldn't slope it, so I just had him put sides on it, six-inch sides, quarter-inch steel. You lower it down on a crane, and you dig a pit, and you sink a few tons of, of charcoal. You get it smoking, and the crane becomes your elevator, and um, and then you get a team to prep 2,000 pounds of meat, and you get these giant paddles, these like 15-foot paddles, and you get the 10 biggest people you can find, the tallest people you can find, and, and, you, and you knock it out. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's a yeah. lot of fun.
5: You started out, no one knew anything about Thai ingredients or Thai food. I think you mentioned that some of the Star Trek episodes actually used <laughs> vegetables and fruits from your father's market because no one knew what it looked like. And, and now, obviously, things have changed. Is
9: that all good news? Oh, man, I think so. I mean, that's the history of, of Thai food in America. And, right. you know, I'm really, I really was really lucky. I mean, to be part of that first Thai food family and weave in all these life experiences, I think it's, it's only good news. And I think it's only the beginning. I mean, you know yeah paramount studios was right down the street so durian jackfruit all uh, bitter melon became like romulan food and king on food and it <laughs> was awesome man and 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 now now we've got people seeking out southern thai versus northeastern right. thai it is it is such a fun time i mean i feel really lucky to have been there from the beginning but you know, I I'm 50. Like I'm gonna be handing off the keys next to the next generation. But
5: oh please, <laughs> you're, you're just a kid. Stop this 50 stuff. Come on. Thanks, Chris. Got, if I was 50, I would be dancing in the streets right now. Chet, um, <laughs> it's been uh, a real pleasure.
9: Chris, thanks, man. Uh, one off the bucket list. Huge fan.
5: Thanks for all this. Thank you so much. That was Jet Tila. His book is 101 Thai Dishes You Need to Cook Before You Die. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe Brazilian black bean stew with pork and beef. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You know, one of my favorite recipes the last two months at Milk Street you know, every hour or so someone comes by with something delicious, but (laughs) it's a Brazilian black bean stew with meat in it. And Mm -hmm. it was so good. Now I'm partial to beans and meat, but this was really extraordinary.
0: This blew me away. I have to say, I wasn't sure what to expect from this. So I was in Sao Paulo and one of the recipes I wanted to learn is kind of the de facto national dish of Brazil and it's called feijoada which is brazilian black bean stew with a whole lot of meat when i say a whole lot of meat i mean sometimes it would be 12 or more meats per stew Uh, (laughs) Now, that was on the outer rim there, but, you know, there were plenty of simpler versions because really, and this is what I love about this story, uh, this is, you know, Cucina Povera, you know, to go Italian here, it is simple food, rustic cooking. You know, it started out using kind of the also-ran cuts of meat, but in the late 1800s in Brazil, the dish went mainstream, and the cuts of meat used in it improved and so today you see it eaten all over and with any variety of meats and boy the taste is just phenomenal so rich and yet not heavy that's kind of one of the things that surprised me because especially you're talking a dozen different cuts of meat you know usually pork and beef it nonetheless tastes light and bright it's really good
5: i hasten to ask (laughs) in our recipe we're not using 12 different cuts right
0: No, I'm happy to say we did scale it back. You know, we've got it down to three. We've got some bone-in beef short ribs, a ham hock, and some chorizo sausage, uh, which gives it real richness. And I mean, that's wonderful stuff. And you combine that with black beans. And what really brightens it, though, and it's really interesting, this is a very traditional part of this dish, is they use orange juice as Mm. kind of the acid in the dish, which really brings a lot of bright citrus flavor, and combined with some tomatoes, it really lightens things, and it's really quite delicious.
5: So unlike a European stew, many European stews, you're not browning the meat, right? That's a step we can skip here?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have so much flavor going on in this stew. That's Absolutely unnecessary. I mean, the chorizo alone makes it unnecessary. But then when you've got the orange juice and rum, there's cumin in there, there's cilantro, there's garlic, there's so much happening in this dish. No need to brown. Save your time.
5: So what's the basic recipe?
0: All right, so basically you're going to cook what amounts to almost a sofrito. You know, you've got some celery, you've got some onion, throwing some garlic and the cilantro stems in and some seasonings. You're going to cook that for a little while, and then you deglaze with rum and the orange juice, and you're going to scrape up all those bits, and then you're going to throw in the beans and let that cook for a while. Then you start adding in the meats, and that's when the flavor really goes like, wow. All those meats, throw in some tomatoes and let it go and it's going to be so delicious.
5: So if you're a little tired of American beef stew, you might want to try Brazilian black bean stew with pork and beef. Really interesting flavors. And by the way, J.M., you're right. It's not heavy. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. You can get this recipe for Brazilian black bean stew at MilkStreetRadio.com.
5: This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett tell us to cheese it. We'll be right back.
3: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag
5: Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions.
8: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Krista from
1: Ann Arbor, Michigan.
8: Hello, Krista. How can we help you today?
1: I made a pernil for the Mm. first time. My dad is a lover of all things pork, so I decided to make this pernil. And the adobo was wonderful. Lots of garlic, oregano. I didn't have access to sour orange, but I used lime juice and a little orange juice. All was great. I had it marinating until I got to the roasting method. And the recipe I used called for a roasting method of uncovered at 400 degrees. And any bone-in pork shoulder that I've ever roasted before, I've roasted covered at a cooler temperature, which has yielded more of a pull-apart, fall-apart product in the end. This one was more sliced and a little drier. The question is, is the skin crispiness worth it that much to have a dry pork roast in the
8: end? I would say absolutely not. First of all, we should say that Pernille is a Puerto Rican dish usually with pork shoulder. It's rubbed with garlic and spices and, as you mentioned, the citrus. And, you know, my understanding is it's usually slow roasted. But what it has on it is this wonderful skin uh, that gets very crispy. I would roast it in a pan covered with some liquid at the bottom of the pan, just water. And just yeah. keep making sure there's a little bit of water down there to keep a steamy environment for most of the way. And then at the end, take off the foil, up the heat, you know, for like the last half an hour to say 400. And okay. uh, hopefully you'll get the best of both worlds with the tender, yummy meat that pulls apart with the crispy skin on top. Yeah, But let's see what Chris has to say.
5: The first time in my life, I have nothing to add. What? I would do exactly yeah. the same thing. Oh well, how nice! Yeah, you definitely don't want to roast uncovered the whole way at 350. That's not going to work.
8: Yeah, or 400. 400 yeah. sounds good. Yeah.
5: you should be able to slow roast a pork shoulder.
8: Well, we'll try it again at a lower speed
1: and ignore the recipe yeah. directions. And with and some
5: then liqu- crank the heat at the end. And yeah. some liquid in the
8: bottom of the pan and keep you yeah. know adding some so there's a moist environment. I will. Okay.
5: All right. All right. Thanks.
8: Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye bye.
5: This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a kitchen disaster, give us a call. We're here to help. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
10: This is Kayla from Hadley, Mass.
5: How can we help?
10: Well, I have a granola recipe that I love. It's a Sam Sifton recipe from the New York Times. And I've been making it for several years with a little bit of a modification. And recently, it started turning out different. In the past, it was not shiny and light-colored. And more recently, it's been shiny and darker and More importantly, it's been a little on the soggy, chewy side instead of crisp. I'm wondering what might have changed.
5: Well, what's in the coating? Let's start with that.
10: Brown sugar, maple syrup, olive oil.
5: And you cooked that on the stove briefly to create a syrup? Yes. What changes did you make in the recipe?
10: I believe the recipe calls for a half cup of brown sugar, and I reduced it to a quarter cup. I don't think that made a change. But one thing I'm wondering about is the kind of maple syrup. And I'm wondering if using a darker syrup might have affected it.
5: I actually boil my own syrup, too, and we like the dark stuff. But the reason it's dark doesn't have to do with the percentage of sugar. Uh, It has to do Uh with organic compounds in the sap and other things. So I don't think that would be it. I do think if you cut the sugar in half— The sugar is going to make it crunchy. If I were you, I'd go back to the half cup.
8: Did you change anything else at all? It also calls for
10: a tablespoon of salt, which I found to be too much. So I cut that to about two teaspoons rather than a tablespoon.
8: Okay. Because things I was thinking is, oh, if it was quick cooking oats, they'd get mushier. If you were using a different size pans, you might be crowding it. You know, if it's not spread out enough, it's not going to crisp. It's like when you make vegetables and you want to roast them and you crowd them, they steam, they don't caramelize. You know what I'm saying? But you say that this problem did not start as soon as you cut back on the sugar. It just has happened recently.
10: Correct. It didn't happen when I cut back on the sugar. It May have happened after I moved to a new house. Oh, oh it's a new come oven. On.
8: That's a different calibration. Uh, no, that was a major yeah, detail there. Come okay. on, Kayla. <laughs> okay. I think that's it. Have you checked the temperature on this oven? I haven't.
5: Okay, we're done. We
8: feel a little <laughs> better now. <laughs> I didn't mean to give you a hard time. We just hate well, this to get is stumped. like being
5: a doctor, and someone comes in and said they have symptoms, but they forget to mention like the key piece yeah. of data. Yeah. I think we're agreeing. Yeah, it's, you need to your get oven. your
8: oven calibrated. I mean, you could also just try upping I, I, it, you know, at 25 degrees.
5: Or 50 degrees. Uh-huh. Yeah.
8: yeah. I think that's it. That's it. That's yeah.
5: definitely it. Just up the oven. Give yeah. it a shot.
8: Thank you very much. <laughs> I look forward to trying it. <laughs> Thank you.
5: Thanks for calling. Next up, it's Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grant Martha, how you guys doing?
2: We're doing great. Hi, Chris.
4: We're talking about cheese this week.
2: Yes, uh, Grant is a tourophile.
4: I am indeed.
2: The word tourophile comes from the Greek word touros, which means cheese. So, Chris, I'm assuming that you're a tourophile.
5: I don't know. If someone came up to me in this street and said, you look like a tourophile, <laughs> I'm not sure how I'd take that, actually.
4: Well, let me ask you, have you ever run across somebody who collects the labels or the packaging of cheese?
5: No, but I'm sure there has to be a, a National Association of... Cheese packaging (laughs) collectors.
4: Well, these people are tyrosemiophiles. They are people who collect those things because some cheese labels are beautiful, but also it's a way of keeping track of what you've eaten and where it's from.
5: A lot cheaper than collecting expensive wine labels. Yeah. Very Um, much so. Now,
4: Martha... There's a connection between that Greek word for cheese and what we put on toast, right?
2: There sure is. Before we leave the Greek word turos, we should mention that it is the second element in the English word butter. The first element is the Greek word boos, which means cow. And so butyros in ancient hmm. Greek is cow cheese. Hmm.
4: Right. So it comes to us from Latin through French and becomes butter.
2: Yeah, it's related to the word bovine.
5: So please pass the buteros. <laughs> exactly.
2: Yes.
4: <laughs> and, and it's got some other connections. Uh, cows are called bossy sometimes, and that is directly connected to oh. that word boss. Yeah. Oh. And butter coming from Norman French replaced the Anglo-Saxon word, which was smiru, which was related to the modern word smear. And to s'more, in the word smorgasbord, which we borrowed from the Swedish.
5: Or, I'll just have a bagel with a schmear.
4: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> That's pretty good. So we're done with butter, but we're not done with cheese.
2: No, we're not done with cheese at all. Um, because, of course, the word cheese itself has been uh, used in the English language to mean a whole lot of different things, hasn't it, Grant?
4: Yeah, so in British English, something is cheese means it's uh, first rate, it's top-notch. Hmm. More specifically, it has something to do with wealth and fame, and it's recorded as early as the 1830s. Um, there's a quote from the 1900s Van Dusen rang the bell in a shocking manner. As it was an electric bell, the high cheese of society overlooked the manner of it being rung. Huh. Um, so, the high cheese, and we're going to connect this to what you're thinking of, which is the big, big cheese. cheese. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, which doesn't really have anything to do with cheese at all. The expression the big cheese probably got introduced into English from Hindi, Urdu, or Farsi, where Hmm. the word C-H-I-Z, cheese, means thing. So the big cheese is really just the big thing, the big deal. Yeah, Mm -hmm. how about that? I
5: thought it was like the big wheel of cheddar.
2: Well, and since you brought up big wheels of cheddar, there is a wonderful German word for describing the size of a little kid. It's drei Käsehoch, which means literally three cheeses high. Right. So if you're talking about a little kid, you can say they're the same size as three stacked wheels of cheese. <laughs> I, I, I think
5: my four-year-old is a vier Käsehoch. He's four, he's four cheeses oh, yeah? high. Yeah. Four he's cheeses a big high. cheese.
4: Yeah. 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 In Italian, too, If you're a person of small stature, you might be described as a seri alto como un soldo di cacio, to be as tall as a penny's worth of cheese.
5: Ooh, that hurts. (laughs) Yeah. Ouch. (laughs) So what about that expression, cheese at the cops? Yeah, cheese Mm. at the cops. What What is that? I never could figure that out.
4: Yeah, so it's a little opaque because, like a lot of slang, it's lost to the mists of time. This one originally meant stop or cut it out or... Be quiet, especially if what someone just said is nonsense or they're telling lies. But it's all about the word cease. So it's thought that the cheese is just a kind of intentional mispronunciation of cease, meaning to to quit, to desist.
2: (laughs) Cheese and desist, yeah.
4: (laughs) Yeah, cheese and desist. (laughs) So it's about 200 years old and
5: comes from underworld slang. Cheese at the cops is much better than, hey, let's desist. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, okay, so we have cheese, we have butter. Yeah,
4: Spanish has some too, Martha, right? Indeed. Some cheesy ones.
2: Yes. In Spanish, if you're talking about deceiving or swindling somebody, you might say darse la a alguien con queso, which means to give it to somebody with cheese, which sounds pretty cruel. I mean, and it may come from mm. baiting a mousetrap, although there's an old story that in the Middle Ages, you, you might trick somebody who's going to buy wine from you by uh, giving them a spicy, pungent piece of cheese before, oh. you know, oh. sample this and then sample my wine right. and it won't taste so bad. So to, to give it to somebody with cheese means to deceive or swindle them.
4: And also in Spanish, if you smell cheese, it's kind of the equivalent of the English, something smells fishy. It means Mm. that something smells not quite Mm. right.
2: And say cheese is... Cheese! (laughs) You know, that's that's what photographers say to you, right?
4: No, they say marmoset.
2: What? (laughs) In French, they do.
4: Yeah, in French, Chris, they say wistiti. It's the French word for marmoset.
5: Happy birthday, say marmoset.
2: (laughs) Yes, that's one thing that you can be told to say in French to make you smile. But it turns out that there are lots of food terms in languages all over the world that people use to make you smile. Besides cheese, for example, in Norwegian and Danish, it's apelsine, which means orange. Mm. They tell you to say orange. And in Swedish, they tell you to say the Swedish equivalent of omelet. In Bulgarian, you're told to say the Bulgarian equivalent of cabbage. And I love the Greek word for cheese, which is used by photographers. Who are trying to get you to smile? They say "tudie," which means cheese,
4: and we'll say toodaloo, Chris, thank you
5: so much for having us on this week. And toodaloo comes from the old Gaelic, right? <laughs> <laughs> Grant, Martha, thank you so much. Say cheese. Cheese, cheese. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away with Words. Early in the show, I spoke with Deb Alki about gourmet manga. You know, I started reading comic books in the 1950s, starting with Superman and Richie Rich and Batman, and then on to X-Men, The Fantastic Four, and then Tales of Suspense. But then I discovered Japanese manga, and I fell in love. This was the first time I realized that other cultures were driving American culture and not the other way around. Now, this is, of course, true of food, from sushi to pad thai, but the influence reaches far deeper from the South Korean film industry to Japanese novels, to design, architecture, fashion, and even philosophy. After World War II, America changed the world by exporting a free market economy and the white bread and blue jeans that went along with it. But now the tables have turned. So being proud to be an American means to be open to the future, no matter who builds the better mousetrap. That's it for this week's show. If you tune in later want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, just go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or learn about our magazine and latest cookbook, Vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks as always for listening.
6: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Media Director Melissa Baldino. Executive Producer Annie Sinzaba, Senior Audio Editor Melissa Allison. Producer Sarah Clapp with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.